The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Otto here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Tonight, we're gonna be talking about delirium with a fantastic guest, Dr. Esther O. Paul, how are you doing tonight? I'm I'm great, Matt. Thank you for asking. How are you? Good. You know, it's the the night before Thanksgiving, not when they're hearing this, but you know, in real time, let's let the audience know what's up and- uh, Sure, peek behind the curtain. You know, what else would we be doing, Paul, but recording a (laughs) podcast? And I am so glad we did because this was a really fantastic episode. And I got to hang out with you, my bud. Yeah, right, right. This is like the old days on Thanksgiving Eve. Um, exactly, exactly like my college days. <laughs> All right, Paul, let's tell the audience what is it we do on the show and then introduce our co-host and, and we'll get the guest's bio. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I was trying to think of a way to seamlessly transition into that and just failed. So thank you. Strong work there. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. As you mentioned, we are also joined tonight by our producer, and as I believe we described him, Hospital's Whiz Kid, Dr. Adam Borelski, um, who I will first say hello to. Hello, Adam. Oh, hello, Paul. Hello, Matt. <laughs> I surprised you with that one. Yeah. And I will now let you tell us about who we talked to and maybe even a little bit about what we talked about. Of course. Uh, we had a, an amazing conversation tonight with our guest, Dr. Esther O, who is an MD, PhD, and the Sarah Miller Colson Human Aging Project Scholar and an Associate Professor in the Division of Geriatric Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She is also the co-director of the Johns Hopkins Memory and Alzheimer's Treatment Center. And currently she serves as the president for the American Delirium Society. Tonight we had a wide ranging review of delirium. We talked about how to recognize delirium, We spent a long time talking about prevention strategies, which I think is really important. We talked about hypoactive and hyperactive delirium, and we got got into the thorny question of when and when not to use antipsychotics. And before we get to it, a reminder to the audience that this and most episodes are available for CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Well, uh, Esther, you're really you're really being indoctrinated into the whole podcast culture here. We just we we all just clapped together for some reason, and uh, now we should bring the audience in. So, can you tell them a little bit about yourself, like a one liner, and be sure to throw in a hobby or interest that you have outside of medicine? Sure. Um, I'm an internal medicine physician with self-special training geriatrics. Um, I would say um, I have rediscovered the joy of post COVID nineteen travel with my family. Hallelujah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and what what is the most recent destination that you've been to? Uh, well, Italy, and then we were also in Greece. Uh, oh, amazing. Yes. Highly recommended. <laughs> I, I think I will do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always like to ask, I, I've actually almost run out of pop culture to consume. Well, it doesn't even have to be pop culture, just culture in general. So I, I'm always curious for our guests if there's a, a book or movie or show or, or some music that you listened to recently that you enjoyed that you would recommend to our listeners. Yes. I'm actually, Paul, I'm an avid reader. So 
I have actually several, if that's okay, um, because um, I just really love reading books, and I'm going to tell the listeners how I do it. So uh, one of the probably the best books I've read recently is The Emperor of All Maladies by Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee, mm-hmm. um, and also Healing by Dr. Thomas Sensel, and uh, Creative Confidence by the Kelly Brothers, who uh, started the Stanford D School. But uh, one article that I would really love for your listeners to uh, read is it's something called um, Who's Got the Monkey? Um, and it's about <laughs> management time. And it's published by Harvard Business Review that was published in 1974. It's one of their best-selling prints, reprints. Uh, it's going to change your life. Great title. So, I, I mean, I'm very intrigued. <laughs> I, I love that article. And I think it be, I think it was a book after that too. I'm not sure, yeah, but um, yes, I have given it to several of my colleagues, all of my mentees. Very, very good article. Tell us about some of the best advice that you've gotten throughout your career, or something that, along with your training that you've picked up, that you tell some of your mentees or some of the people that you uh, you teach. Yes. So one one um, one uh, doctor that I remember is um, uh, someone who I met uh, when I was a third year medical student, and he said, "You know, when you see someone with an acute mental status change in the hospital, the first thing you should think is, what did the doctor do?" <laughs> <laughs> and I've never forgotten it. And that's that, that's what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> Paul, we are famously bad at transitions, but that was actually a great transition for us. <laughs> We're sponsored by Panacea Financial, a nationwide digital bank built for doctors by doctors. So whether you're a fourth-year medical student, a resident, or an attending physician, Panacea is designed specifically for you. Panacea Financial offers free checking with no ATM fees nationwide, 24-7 customer service and loan options, custom made for physicians or trainees at every stage of their career. So instead of running up credit card debt, try their PRN personal loan. It's a better way to cover expenses like relocation, board exams, home renovations, or even consolidating high interest debt. Their PRN personal loan is funded in as little as 24 hours and interest rates start at half that of a typical credit card. They also support doctors in other ways, including helping them start, expand, or buy into a practice. So if you're ready to join the thousands of doctors who have declared independence from traditional banks, visit PanaceaFinancial.com today to open your free account. That's PanaceaFinancial.com. Panacea Financial is a division of Premise Member FDIC. Adam, why don't you start us off with a case to make sure, yeah, we're, of course, we're going to run out of time because we have a million questions about this topic, but why don't you start mm-hmm. us off with a case and, and ask the first question? Sure. Well, let, well, let's start on the wards at Cashlack. Um, we're taking care of a 76-year-old man who has diabetes, coronary disease, um, who carries a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment. And he came in a few days ago, was admitted for community-acquired pneumonia, spent a couple of days in the ICU and just transitioned down to the floor. Um, And his partner mentions that despite improving, he just doesn't quite seem back like himself yet. So before we jump into this, obviously we're gonna be talking about delirium tonight. Um, Esther, do you mind just defining delirium for the audience and telling us how you think about this broad topic? Sure. 
So um, I would define delirium as an acute disorder of attention and cognition. Um, you know, some people might call it altered mental status, acute confusional state, encephalopathy, and so on. Um, and it can also be very confusing um, to detect, I think, when patients have cognitive impairment or dementia. Yeah, I think the coders like us to call it encephalopathy, but I know I feel like delirium is, it's just one of those terms that gets thrown around, but encephalopathy is it, do you, do you think it's important to differentiate any of those other things that you may, they may ask us to put in the chart when someone actually has delirium? Yes. Yeah, so uh, one of the introductions that thing that I didn't really mention is that I am the president of the American Delirium Society. So I would like everybody to call delirium as delirium, but there is a difference. Uh, so delirium, you know, as I mentioned to you, is a confusional state, um, you know, changing cognition. Um, encephalopathy actually, you know, would include delirium, and but also comatose patients. And um, obviously you can't assess for delirium in patients who are comatose. It's a little bit different. Um, mm. We do know that actually uh, the reason why the coders ask you to change the diagnosis is because um, it does actually have a, a little bit of higher reimbursement rate, I believe. Um, and that's the reason. That makes a lot of sense, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Oh, good work. Keeping the lights on. Yeah. So we, yeah. <laughs> we, we mentioned that we're, so we're getting history from the, the patient's partner who says the patient doesn't seem quite like himself. I guess, you know, I, I think seeing patients who have delirium in the hospital is often very sort of alarming to patients' family members. I'm wondering... As, as you're beginning the discussion with them, how, how do you have this conversation with a family member when you're sort of describing what's going on with the patient and trying to, to tell them what delirium actually is? Yeah, so um, I would say that um, it's obviously very, very distressing uh, for the patients and, you know, um, well, patients themselves, which, I, you know, I can talk about in a bit, but also for the, um, the family members. Um, you know, for care partners, family members, um, we would say that um, if your loved ones become delirious, it means that they really can't think very clearly. Uh, they can't pay attention. That, that's really key. And it's really not aware of their uh, environment or surroundings. You mentioned that it's different than dementia. And I know this comes up a lot. So can you just kind of pull apart those two ideas and kind of how you tell the difference between the two? Yeah. So um, I'm actually a, a memory clinic specialist. So I'm an internist, geriatrician, but most of my clinical responsibilities on outpatient basis are at the Johns Hopkins Memory and Alzheimer's Treatment Center. So I think the best way to kind of think about is delirium, once again, is acute change in mental status. And dementia, you know, I would say is more chronic. So this is where I think the family involvement, uh, care partner, informants, all those things, you know, people become very, very um, important. So especially, you know, I think if you're working in the hospital, when a patient's admitted to the hospital, it's very difficult to determine um, if the mental status change is acute or chronic. And so uh, you need to ask the family members, you know, is this like, is this your family member? Is this your loved one? And actually there's an initiative called, this is not my mom in Canada. So this is to bring attention to the fact that we sometimes miss delirium diagnosis because we may attribute it to the confusion to dementia. And so the providers need to ask the family members, is this a change from baseline? And so even if you have a patient who has dementia, uh, the family member would say, yeah, my mom has dementia, but this is not my mom. And that is to make you understand that you should be paying more attention, that this could be not just chronic dementia syndrome, but also could be there could be an acute mental status change or delirium. Um, 
And I would say another really important distinguishing point is attention. So when I see patients in my memory clinic, um, often even in fairly advanced cases of dementia, um, what they're saying to you may not make a lot of sense, but while they're saying it, they're very, very attentive to you. So attention is key. So patients who have delirium are very, very inattentive. So when you're talking to them, they might uh, either kind of drift off um, as in they're becoming inattentive or even sometimes fall asleep. And so that should also kind of trigger your, you know, um, higher suspicion for delirium as well. Yeah, I find that when a patient's admitted to the hospital overnight and you're seeing them as the attending the next day, that's often the biggest question. And often by the time you're rounding, you might not know yet. And you're, you're saying, what is this person's baseline? Are they always just barely able to tell you their name or is this how, or is this a brand new thing? And sometimes it's, it's hard to know. Uh, and sometimes the only people that can provide that is the facility where that person came from or, um, I think also sometimes the family hasn't seen them in a while and it's it's hard to figure it out just by talking to the family. So it's, it is it is a challenging thing uh, for sure. So I empathize. <laughs> I'm sure other people are thinking the same thing. Well, Adam, do you want to move on in the case a little bit? So you evaluate the patient. The vital signs are stable. He's alert and oriented to person and time, but frequently falls asleep during your interview. His lung exam's improving and his labs are stable. You're considering transitioning him to oral antibiotics in preparation for discharge, but are concerned that he may be experiencing delirium. So how can we confirm the diagnosis of delirium in a patient like this? Yeah, so um, there are many tools that you can use, but I would say um, take-home message is that ultimately you're the clinician, and so we can have different tools uh, to screen for delirium, but you would need to make the ultimate decision. You know, it's like saying, you know, can I just use MMSE to diagnose dementia, you know, and the answer is no. So the, some of the tools that are available are um, a, a confusion assessment method or CAM or mm-hmm. 4AT, and actually you can find both of them um, and uh, just the forms of the PDFs on American Dream Society website. Um, there's actually an app that you can um, download if you have an iPhone. Um, it's called ub CAM, C-A-M. Um, it's very self-explanatory uh, tool. Um, and so, you know, it's important to understand that these are very helpful tools, but, you know, once again, ultimately you make the decision. And I think all of, all of these tools have thresholds. So I think it's kind of, you know, it's like any other medicine, you know, question. So we talk about delirium, and but, you know, researchers kind of talk about what we call subsyndromal delirium, as in delirium that might be brewing, that these tools may not pick up. So it's, you know, it's like saying, um, well, you know, would you say 99 in heart rate is not an elevated heart rate, but it's 100 that's elevated. So we have to kind of get the, you know, uh, cutoff value. But if you suspect that a patient has delirium, even if the tool is, the, the screen tool is negative, I think you should uh, uh, start a workup. Uh, that that reminds me, like, do you subscribe to the fact that delirium is an emergency, like, or a type of emergency? I mean, I've, I've heard geriatricians say that before, that like, you know, if you have a patient and they're having delirium, and maybe they were talking the I guess inpatient setting or outpatient setting it it you know certainly you should pay attention to it but how do you think about that the urgency of of delirium yeah, I mean, you know, it depends. Uh, so in the history, you might come up with, you know, some cases where patients, family members kind of, when you, you know, probe into it, um, they have kind of an ongoing low-grade delirium. Sometimes it comes and goes. I think the urgency is different depending on uh, who they are. I would love to talk a little bit later about, um, you know, 
not just really thinking about delirium as delirium, no delirium in a very like, you know, yes or no dichotomous way, but really talking about delirium severity and duration and how those things are actually more important. Um, if I may, um, Adam, just kind of go back to the delirium screening. So, you know, I talk about, you know, uh, UB CAM, CAM, 4AT, all those kind of tools. But, you know, when you're rounding on a lot of patients every day, sometimes it's not easy to kind of whip out those tools and say, let me do a formal delirium assessment, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, um, among 134 things that I have to do today. So there's a quick bedside thing that I do, which is really ends up being the ultra brief CAM, which is they have kind of distilled it down to two questions. One is, what is today? And then can you recite uh, months of the year backwards starting with December? So really that uh, the latter one is testing for attention. Um, and I find that, you know, pretty much all of my patients are fairly receptive to at least um, getting started. They may not be able to complete it, but I rarely get complaints. I highly would discourage you from doing any kind of math-related attention test, <laughs> like subtract seven from 100. <laughs> that pretty much is the quickest way to get kicked out of the room. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's and the so the UB cam because I was going to ask you how long do these these tests take to to administer the cam? I haven't administered the cam test or the four AT test. Are those are those like are those a five minute investment of time? A ten minute investment or? I would say they're very, very brief, Um, especially if you do something like UB cam um, and you have an app. It's probably two or three minutes. But once again, you know, one thing that I want to kind of talk about is um, since I do a lot of research in delirium, a lot of researchers work on creating briefer and briefer, you know, delirium screening tools, hoping that more people will do delirium screening. That is not the barrier. You know, we could have a one minute delirium screening tool, but um, it has to be something that actually makes a difference. So, you know, we often ask our nursing staff to do delirium screening and we often find that, you know, they don't do it. And if you kind of think about it, you know, um, we, you know, what happens, you know, if a nurse calls and says, you know, um, it's usually intern on the other line, it might say, oh, you know, doctor, um, you know, your patient, you know, so-and-so is delirium positive. You might say, thank you, and hang up the phone because, <laughs> well, what do we do, right? Like, what do I do with that information? And so you can imagine, no matter how brief the test is or screening test is, after a while, if the nursing staff feels that the information they're gathering um, is not really translating to action or something that is really done by providers, I think they would stop doing. So, you know, I, I'm talking about, you know, uh, brief screening tools that you can do, the nursing staff can do, a lot of people can do, but, um, you know, would also love to talk a little bit later, later about, you know, what are, what are some of the things that you can do once somebody is delirium positive? I think before we get to interventions, just a question that came to me, and this may be the same way of asking just about risk factors, but are there any prediction tools? Like, can you, are there ways to kind of anticipate who actually may develop delirium during hospitalization? Yes, there are a lot of uh, delirium prediction tools, but I would say probably, um, you know, uh, it, the way I kind of pictured this is, and and I apologize, I am a memory clinic doctor, so I tend to be brain centric. <laughs> so at the center of it is a vulnerable brain. And I would say, if you ask me, well, who who would who would be at risk for delirium? I would say everybody. We actually see this in PICU as well, so hmm. pediatric population. So in older adults, it's the vulnerable brain at you know in the center. So patients who might have recognized and unrecognized dementia or some type of neurodegenerative disease. And in those cases, it really doesn't take much, you know, to push somebody over the edge and, you know, they develop delirium. 
But we do see healthy younger people develop delirium, uh, especially like at, say, an intensive care unit. Maybe somebody comes in with a you know, car accident, a uh, 30-year-old, uh, they're under a lot of uh, sedation, you know, um, you know, so on. They might be on a ventilator. So the point is that they have a healthy brain, but the insult's great. So it's kind of a balance of what is the, you know, kind of the underlying vulnerability of the brain and, you know, how much is the, how much insult is there, you know, so that kind of balances it out. So I would say everybody is at high risk, but definitely older adults who tend to have, you know, underlying neurodegenerative process are at the, probably at the highest risk. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you you mentioned earlier about using some of these tools as screening, and I just I want to ask a little bit about the utility of looking for this in all comers who are on your service or certain populations who you might think are at risk versus waiting until you know the family member said this is not my mom um, to try try to evaluate for it. So, is there utility in doing this as a screening? intervention for patients, even if you're not highly suspicious for delirium? Yeah, um, I think there's, you know, probably two-part answer. So everybody's kind of looking to uh, figure out who would be at the highest risk, you know, how can we basically stratify? Um, So um, I can tell you that a lot of people are working on, you know, like artificial intelligence, looking at big data, EMR data to see when the patient arrives in the emergency department, are there some kind of algorithms or, you know, think uh, risk factors that they can, you know, basically immediately create to see uh, this person, although they don't have delirium at this point, would be at high risk and so on. Now, uh, but having said that, um, I want to talk about what's called, you know, um, a lot of unrecognized either dementia or underlying neurodegenerative disease in older adults. So I did a lot of uh, study in hip fracture population. Um, if you look at hip fracture population, post-operative delirium is around 30 to 40%, depending on which study you, wow. um, you look at. They tend to be older, mid-80s. And what we found out from what we call biomarker studies, so we looked at actually cerebral spinal fluid for Alzheimer's disease biomarkers, is even in very well-characterized normal older adults, they had basically positive biomarker levels that will basically you know, be equivalent to having um, Alzheimer's disease. So what 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 that means is that um, uh, just from like a dementia perspective, when you're diagnosing somebody with, let's say, Alzheimer's disease, just hypothetically, that disease process usually occurs even 20 to 30 years before it becomes clinically, you know, uh, uh, manifest, so to speak. So you could have uh, someone who comes into your um, hospital who is an older adult, is completely functioning at home, um, is you know normal, described as normal at home, um, could have full of disease in their brain, and all it takes is you know just a infection or you know disorientation being from the, being in the hospital to unmask, so to speak, that underlying neurodegenerative process, and you have delirium at hand. Adam, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this before. I, I, I think I've I've had patients, family members kind of lamenting. You know, they were fine. They were home. They were doing okay. Then they come in, they're pretty sick and they have delirium and it's like a really protracted, severe case of delirium, which, and and then I, I always find those are the challenging ones to deal with. I'm, I'm not sure, Adam, if it's cases like that there, why you wanted to produce this episode, but. <laughs> those, those are definitely, you know, I think leading up to this episode, I realized how cavalier I can be sometimes with the subtle mental changes that happen with a lot of the patients that we take care of in the hospital. But those are the cases, the the really difficult ones that obviously um, stick in your memory. Um, can I 
can I push a little bit more, Esther, and just ask is, should we, I, I, I'm still a little bit curious about how much we should go looking for delirium. Um, I know we'll get to some of the treatments and some of the treatment pitfalls in a little bit, um, but but I'm curious whether this is worth really trying to search high and low for in our patients or whether we should wait until there's something that really trips the wire for us. Yeah, thank you, Adam. So, you know, I think this also goes back to Matt's question about, you know, is this an urgent issue? Is this an emergency? You know, why, I think, you know, where the question is, why does it matter? Why is, why is it important? So, you know, um, I would say even like 20, 30 years ago, delirium was just thought to be some transient condition. It just happens in older adults. You didn't really need to about it because it just happened for a couple of days and it went away. Now we know better. Uh, there's a really bad uh, long-term outcomes that are associated with delirium. Uh, before I, you know, I just kind of tell you about some numbers, I'm going to tell you about what I think is really important, which is patient's experience, patient distress. So um, it could range from, you know, just kind of... Uh, some dreamlike state to, in some cases, um, especially this has been true where COVID-19 has been described as a delirium factory. Um, I think I remember like uh, uh, reading um, an article in the Atlantic about this uh, uh, person who, um, you know, was in the intensive care unit due to COVID-19. And I think she had imagined that a nurse was coming over uh, to basically saw her, you know, arms and legs off, um, incredibly distressing things that you can't even imagine. Um, and so even though the patient looks like they're just sleeping and they're calm, and, you know, we can talk about maybe hypoactive delirium a little bit later, the, the patient distress is very, very significant. If you're talking about older adults, we think that delirium occurs one older adult every five minutes. And it's associated with long-term outcomes such as um, uh, disability, institutionalization. So you come in you know, to the hospital from your home, and now you have to be discharged to a basically skilled nursing facility. We know that it's associated with functional decline, um, higher mortality. But what we're really, really noticing now, and it's an important really focus, is that actually it's associated with incident dementia. And there are a couple of things that, that we have very good evidence that uh, what's happening with delirium and that delirium is not um, harmless. So, for example, especially in the perioperative settings, we have done biomarker studies. So um, people have shown that um, just blood tests of what's called um, NFL, it's called neurofilament light, and that's usually associated with like traumatic brain injury, dementia, and so on. And so what they find is that patients who have delirium actually have much significant higher level of change in that uh, basically a marker of neurodegeneration, that when the patient looks like they're sleeping, there's actually neuronal damage that's occurring. Another important um, study that just came out, it's called Decide Study, and it was done in UK. And what they did was that they basically piggybacked on a cohort study where um, older adults in the community were having baseline cognitive assessments every, you know, two to three years. Conveniently, those adults in the uh, certain areas actually went to two hospitals. So every time they were hospitalized, the investigator um, actually were able she was able to actually do delirium screening on daily basis up until discharge. And what they found, because they had a clear baseline neuropsychological testing result, is that when you came out, compared to those who had not experienced delirium, if you had delirium inpatient, you had eightfold higher odds of developing dementia after discharge. And that was even higher if you had more severe delirium 
if your duration of delirium is longer. Um, so those are things that are just really coming out um, in the literature recently to kind of demonstrate definitively that, you know, delirium is not something that we should ignore. Yeah, because I've always seemed to observe the fact that sometimes patients get delirium and it's it's almost like they never rebound completely back up to baseline. And it sounds mm-hmm. like maybe this research is confirming that. Yep. Well, wow. thank you for frightening us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can, can I ask you to dis- disabuse me of uh, a thought that sometimes pops into my head about delirium, where sometimes I, I think of it like, you know, an elevated troponin in someone with subclinical coronary disease that gets sepsis, where there's some problem that exists, there's some issue um, neurologically or some cognitive impairment, and then something happens and it just kind of unmasks this already present subclinical thing. It sounds like what you're saying is that's not the case, that this is its own insult that kind of can drive things moving forward. But I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, I think it's hard to tease out. So we know that when somebody is experiencing delirium, um, there's neuronal damage. We also know that there is actually active inflammation going on. Same thing. Um, some studies that have done um, lots of different inflammatory m- markers, uh, but you, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with CRP. Um, you know, a lot of cardiologists get them. So basically an inflammatory biomarker. Same thing where, you know, uh, patients who have delirium or ex- experience delirium have higher difference or change, um, you know, once you've developed delirium compared to baseline. Um, So I think that's kind of like the, currently, as far as we know, it's like a unifying theory of delirium is that a lot of this, you know, these different, you know, factors, one of the things that happens is that there's a brain inflammation. So let's say uh, somebody's, you know, having uh, bacteremia or sepsis, Uh, there's a lot of like inflammatory mediators that travel through the, you know, uh, bloodstream. Uh, We think, well, you know, there's a blood-brain barrier, so that should be blocking it off. In older adults, a lot of those things are damaged. So that actually goes into the brain. Uh, sometimes it activates, you know, microglia. So, which in turn, you know, um, you know, produces more inflammatory factors. And so the idea is that those things are actually damaging the um, the neurons. And then if that continues for a long time, that can actually result in neuronal um, death. So that's the kind of the hypothesis. But you know, I, I want to just kind of be careful because often I, you know, I, and I meant, you know, I tend to kind of think, think through this way too, is that, you know, we're talking about delirium, like it's a disease, but please remember that it's a syndrome. Um, it's really important that when we're talking about, you know, what's causing delirium and how do we treat it? We just have to think what, what, what did cause delirium? Was it, you know, infection? Was it metabolic disturbance? Was it medication? So it's a, it's not it's not a disease. And when we're thinking about prevention, uh, treatment, and all those things, I think that has to be the you know really the forefront of um, our thinking. I want to I want to bring it to the case. So we we have this seventy six year old uh, admitted to the hospital, mild cognitive impairment at baseline, and he's here with pneumonia. And now we're thinking we were going to discharge him, but he has inattention and he's, he's falling asleep. We're trying to talk to him. The, one of the questions is like, could we have prevented this somehow? You mentioned prevention. We're going to talk about how we might treat him. What, what can we do to prevent delirium? And yeah, let's, let's just leave it at that. Sure. Um, 
I think it's important for everybody to understand that about 30 to 40% on delirium uh, may be uh, preventable. We can't prevent all delirium. And Unfortunately, what's happening nowadays, I think, in a lot of health systems is um, there's a, a, due to staff shortage and a, a lot of other issues, I think a lot of patients end up boarding in the emergency department a little longer than they should. And so by the time you see them on the floor, um, they've been there actually, you know, physically for, you know, perhaps even two days and they're delirious. So maybe the intervention in terms of prevention really should be, you know, discussed even like in the emergency department setting. But um when we talk about prevention, you know, I want to, us to kind of get away from like envisioning like a pill <laughs> because there is no <laughs> pill that's going to prevent it. It's, um, you know, what we call multi-component, uh, you know, non-pharmacological prevention uh, that has been uh, shown over and over again to be helpful. And so I just want to kind of take you through what that might actually constitute. Sure. So, um, so once again, it's kind of multi-component. So, um, uh, the first is like orientation activities. It could be as simple as just updating the board with the doctor's name, the nurse's name, the date, having the correct date uh, to orient the patient, uh, providing activities. Obviously, there's staff shortage. You know, why not bring the family in? You know, um, perhaps they may be able to stay engage the patient in conversation, you know, continue to orient them. Fluid repletion is a big problem. You know, we always think of fluid repletion as like just hanging an IV bag and then the patient goes into CHF and then we have to give them Lasix. So when I talk about fluid repletion, we're really talking about oral hydration. And then of course that is very, very personal intensive, right? And how often have you gone on wards and seen your patient with a, a big, you know, big gulf, you know, 7-Eleven size, you know, uh, glass water and, you know, they're instructed to drink all of it by next shift, right? But it's out of the reach. So there's no way they could ever reach and, you know, drink that. So there's a lot of barriers. And a couple, several things I want to say about fluid repletion, or for that matter, any of the components about prevention is that take-home message today is that delirium is everyone's responsibility, and we all have to be in it. So you know, if the patient says, I'm thirsty, or I'm, you know, hungry, or I'm, you know, like, can you help me? It's not, why don't you, you know, ring the nurse's bell? Or like, you know, I'll ask the nurse to give it to you. <laughs> we need to do it now. Like, there's no reason why we cannot help our patients take a sip of water, right? And if everybody does it, you know, they will be fully hydrated, especially with patients with dementia, if you give them a large glass of water, it's incredibly daunting. So what we actually recommend both home and hospital is actually, you know, like a shot glass, like from like Niagara Falls. Give them a flight yeah. of waters, right? Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. Just, <laughs> just small, small. <laughs> I don't know about flight of water. <laughs> well, yeah. One of those wooden trays, like they give yeah. you the shots Tap at, water, at a restaurant. Distilled water, Perrier. <laughs> yeah. No, but in all seriousness, uh, but thank you for that suggestion. So I did not think about flight of water, but like, you know, small. And then you, you know, ask them to drink and that's like manageable. And, uh, you know, they might forget it a little bit later. And so you come back and say, hey, you know, would you like a little bit more water? So that's how we keep basically keep on hydrating patients. Early mobilization. So we want to talk about safe mobility, activating our patients. And that's often, unfortunately, um, kind of at odds sometimes with false prevention. We're so scared mm -hmm. of our patients falling in the hospital that we tethered them to the bed. And that is the fastest way to becoming 
um, disabled, <laughs> you know, encouraging debility and delirium as well. Feeding assistance goes without saying. Vision and hearing. So uh, this is really important. You know, uh, patients uh, don't like to bring their glasses and hearing aids to hospital because we always manage to lose them. But if they still have them, if they haven't lost it from last hospitalization, you can ask the family <laughs> members to bring them in. And also what I would say is that, um, so we um, use like pocket talkers sometimes um, for those listeners who don't know what a pocket talker is. And if you're if you're old enough to know what a Walkman is, so it is a headset and like you can talk to a microphone and that basically amplifies um, sound. Now, one thing that's really important to understand is that communication is not just about amplification. So when you're communicating with the patient, if you just have mild hearing loss, you can actually change the way you communicate with the patients for them to hear more clearly because hearing aids actually does not uh, make your sound cl more clear. It's your enunciation. So getting their attention first, a lot of older adults have high pitch um, loss. So you can lower your voice and talk like this and they can hear you much better. They have hard time listening to SH and CH sounds because it's very soft. So if they don't, they look at you like they didn't understand the first time, the thing not to do is to say it out loud, the same thing over again. You have to rephrase and redirect them. Um, sleep enhancement, really inexpensive items like basically earplugs and like not like talking loud outside of the room. Um, obviously, infection prevention, pain management, too much pain medication or too little pain medication can cause delirium. Um, hypoxia protocol makes sure that, obviously making sure that they're well oxygenated. And finally, reducing psychoactive medication. So you can see it's a bundle. Mm -hmm. So um, it somehow we need to figure out a way it's part of the workflow and it's not a extra work that needs to be done by somebody else because that somebody else does not exist. How important is the sleep component? Because it, it seems intuitively, it seems like it's really important. There has been a much needed push towards like not waking patients up for vital signs or for labs. Like does how much, how important is sleep regulation? I, you, you did touch on it a little bit, but I feel like it, to me, just because I value sleep so much personally, <laughs> I feel like it has to be critically important as part of the prevention too. Am I, am I misguided there? No, I, you are not misguided, Paul. Um, you are right on the money. It's incredibly important. Um, and so I think, you know, the thing that I want to emphasize is we just talked about non-pharmacological methods, low-hanging fruit, uh, but invariably our patients have, you know, sleep disturbance because some of it is like, actually a lot of it is probably iatrogenic. We, we cause it for various yeah. reasons. Um, and then we are either giving them, you know, medications to make them sleep, which, you know, uh, could cause delirium as well as, you know, kind of more of a, a if, even if they're not delirious, sort of a cognitive impairment the following day. We know that about, you know, sleeping agents. Um, I do want to say, you know, one thing about, uh, because we do give melatonin a lot for sleep, obviously it's not going to make them fall asleep. It's just to really, you know, uh, regulate the circadian rhythm. You know, if you just close your eyes, <laughs> your brain naturally secretes melatonin. So if you darken your room and like if the patients are not on the phone or iPad or if the lights are not on, um, it will actually secrete melatonin nat naturally. So there are a lot of things that we can do environmentally to just kind of promote sleep, which is an integral part of delirium prevention. I, I love all this, Esther. Sometimes in our notes, we just paste all of those topics 
And I'm not sure how many of, of those strategies get implemented. Specifically, as I walk around and see the wrong date on all the boards, I, I think that maybe <laughs> we're missing something here. So I'm curious if you have any recommendations for more of a quality improvement or systems science uh, way to, to try to make this happen in our hospitals. And let's yeah. let's like we did have one suggestion come out of this. Those wooden wooden flights, you know, to put the mini shot glasses with water. <laughs> Guaranteed. And everyone speaks with a very low voice. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, I would say that's that's your IP and you need to patent it right away. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so thank you. So, you know, I gave this lecture to um uh, you know, a group of learners, you know, uh, not too long ago. And um, the question came up, you know, is there something like an order set or a delirium bundle as, you know, this person called it that we can just order, you know, that would make, you know, our lives much easier. Uh, what I didn't ask this person is, well, who would do that, right? So we're talking about multi-component, non-pharmacological intervention that I just described. And uh, one of the tenets that I have is that we cannot we cannot give one more thing for nurses to do. Nurses to do. Yes. It, we just cannot do that. And so we really have to be more inventive, creative. But I think also um, having visited lots of different hospitals and how people are practicing, one thing that I realize is that it, it's not whether you have a delirium bundle or whatever EMR system you have. It's the people and it's the culture. The places... Uh, units, wards where they have kind of a critical mass of people who are invested uh, of, you know, all ranks and, you know, uh, different specialties, they make it happen. Like, so I visited one place where they said, restraints, we don't, we don't do that. Uh, we, you know, we would, we just don't do that. We would just, um, you know, get patient safety attendants. Uh, we also call them sitters, um, you know, to kind of sit with the patient and uh, um, someone who, you know, uh, was there said that was a very different culture from a different place that this person had come from where um, once the patient came into the unit, they automatically got, you know, like mittens because, you know, that's what you do. So it's a lot of it is culture uh, because we know the evidence. So I think, you know, when we talk about QI projects or how do we implement it, like we, we ourselves really need to be the change agent. You know, and we need to basically um, talk to other people, uh, get them invested. And, you know, it really has to, you know, stem from cultural change. You know, we know what to do, but really changing um, culture of a hospital or you know, unit is a really, really difficult thing. So it's not about creating a bundle or no no bundle. It's about uh, given what we have, you know, how do, how do we make it happen and how, how much are we invested in light of the fact that there's a lot of other initiatives that's ongoing at the same time at any given time and any given ward. Yes. I think we should get to wrapping up this case. So this comes up a lot. And I, I love the way, Adam, that you frame this where you're like, well, we're ready to discharge him. Uh, so... You know, uh, Esther, how do you how do we handle this when a patient's like stable delirium? Let's say they have had the same kind of delirium for five or six days. Maybe they're not requiring a one to one, but they're not quite at their their baseline, and they have this they just kind of protracted hypoactive delirium, maybe mild severity. I mean, can we discharge patients in that condition? I mean, would they get better maybe if they go back to familiar settings? Yeah. So, uh, Matt, if I may just kind of talk a little bit about hypoactive delirium for the listeners. So, um, 
often we think of delirium as we envision patients who are like pulling out their IVs and so agitated, that's the hyperactive delirium. But that's really only about like one quarter or 25% of patients. The more really common type is hypoactive. I call it the quiet delirium. And that's about 75 to three quarters of patients. And so what they would look like unless you active screening is that they just look like they're sleeping or resting and you have no idea that they're actually delirious. So these types of patients, um, I have to say, it's really also difficult for me as well because I know as a geriatrician and dementia specialist that in some patients, delirium would take a long time to resolve. So a couple of things. One is if you are um, confident that you've worked up everything, all the ideologies, and you know um, you've done your best in terms of you know making sure that uh, you've removed all the you know perhaps offending agents, their infections under control, all those things, and so you're now you know wondering, well, you know, should I send them to a rehab place or should they go home? You know, I think it depends. So if they if they don't really have anybody, they don't have a uh, they, they can't get a close follow up. Perhaps rehab, you know, is the best. Um, but, you know, sometimes, you know, home is not a bad idea because, you know, some of the things that I talk about with, you know, my um, my medical students is, well, even if the patient qualifies for, you know, three hours of rehab a day, so acute rehab, you know, what do they do for 21 hours? They have to lay in bed, right? And then if you try to get out of bed, you're asked to go back to bed. So when you're at home... Um, even though you might not have nursing staff right by you, actually the patient's actually uh, forced in a way to do more for themselves. Um, you know, hopefully there's a, obviously family supervision. And so if you have a case where a patient is, you know, has good support at home, home care nursing can do a close follow-up or PCP can see them, you know, really soon, a more familiar environment where they will be doing a little bit more for themselves might not be a bad idea. All right. That's that's helpful. I know we could talk a lot more about that, but I know a lot of people are going to want to hear about a case of hyperactive delirium. Let's say we kept this patient an extra couple of days and they got they got better. We actually were able to just send him home. So the, the, that, that guy did okay. But Adam, tell us about another patient. So the next day we admit a patient who's 92-year-old woman um, with mild cognitive impairment from vascular disease who comes in uh, after a fall and a hip fracture. She's now post-operative day two, and the nurses call you for uh, increasing agitation and aggressive behaviors. They are worried. They say that uh, she's going to try to get out of bed by herself and have a fall. So this is obviously a very different type of patient from the first one. So can you just talk us about how you would approach this situation? Sure. So once again, um, you know, I want listeners to kind of think, well, delirium is not a disease, it's a syndrome. So I still need to figure out what's happening. So especially in an agitated, hyperactive case, you know, you just want to just kind of resolve it over the phone. But I think you really need to spend some time figuring out what is causing the problem. I'll give you an example. You know, there are a lot of, uh, especially male patients who get up frequently during the night, um, they do that at home because they might have BPH, right? But if they do that in the hospital, they might be uh, labeled as being, you know, wanting to get out of bed all the time, being agitated. It's something that we have to do something about and maybe perhaps even with the medication. You know, maybe we can go and ask or ask the family members, you know, like, okay, do you just need to go to the bathroom? And maybe what we need to do is a system. Um, you know, if you think about, you know, also agitated case, you know, do they have like congestive heart failure? Maybe they're like 
volume overloaded? Could they have had PE? I've seen cases like this where it's just manifesting as agitation. Mm-hmm. We do need to pay attention. We need to figure out what's going on. So the point is that we still, once again, just as you know, we did for hypoactive delirium, we need to figure out what is causing the hyperactive delirium. Um, so I think that will be like the the you know the first step. Um, I'll be happy to also talk about um, if need be uh, pharmacological treatment as well. I think that's something that the lis- listeners might be very interested in. Adam, does that ever come up on your service? <laughs> <laughs> this is a completely foreign thing. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you've never seen a case like this. <laughs> I, I I always find these situations really really challenging because especially if if a patient does have hyperactive delirium and we've come to that conclusion sometimes they're younger patients sometimes they're you know more more physically it sounds like uh capable than maybe this 92 year old woman after a hip fracture but a lot of times the question is how do we keep this patient safe uh how do we keep our nursing staff safe how do i've had patients swing at me only some of the times have it has it been deserved um but how do we how do we kind of keep all the staff that are trying to do our best to take care of these patients safe while also not, you know, worsening the patient's condition. So I'm curious about your thoughts in this scenario, which I'm sure you've dealt with many times too. Yeah. So um, I have to say that most often, you know, the first um, thing that I try to do is see uh, if there's a staff member, so patient safety attendant who can be with the patient and just kind of reorient them. And often, you know, that kind of works well. Um, So because I think especially if somebody has cognitive impairment, um, they have a lot of difficulty expressing what, what it is that exactly, you know, they want. And then kind of it escalates from there due to the communication problems. You know, if you have like one-on-one attendant, it works a little bit better. Um, we do not uh, recommend antipsychotic use uh, for prevention or uh, treatment of uh, delirium. But I do want to tell you that um, if patients' um, um, safety or, or staff members' safety um, is in question, as in like they could harm someone, um, I think medication use is um, indicated. So evidence is not there. So for first generation and second generation antipsychotics, you know, which are mostly antidopaminergic agents, um, you know, if you look at really well done, you know, high quality randomized control trials, they don't reduce delirium severity doesn't shorten delirium um, duration. It doesn't shorten length of stay of hospitalization and so on. So it doesn't really, you know, work. Um, you know, so sometimes we think, well, maybe what it does is it just kind of sedates the patient and that's how it works. And we've mm-hmm. actually looked at sedation as one of the side effect profiles and there's no difference between medication and placebo. So it's not even that. So so that's, you know, that's the evidence. However, I am very much empathetic to the fact that, you know, there are cases when it's very difficult and something needs to be done. So I want the listeners to kind of think about, um, you know, what we have at hand. I rarely use, you know, first generation like haloperidol. Uh, So when we're talking about like second generation, we're really talking about like quetiapine, uh, olanzapine, and uh, risperidol. So I always kind of think of them as like a different side effect profile. So from weakest to strongest antidopaminergic activity, so that's where the side effect comes from, is Seroquel, and the one step stronger is olanzapine, and then one step stronger is risperidol. 
And then, so there's a side effect profile that I kind of consider. And then I think about the formulation. So for example, uh, you know, one of the complaints that, you know, I get is, oh, you prescribed the pill, but they just, you know, basically they'll just spit it out. So it's not going to work. You know, can you give me an, an IM, uh, you know, order? I, I've never given an IM order. Um, so one thing that you can do is olanzapine comes in disintegrating tablet. Um, so actually you can just kind of pop it in their mouth and they would just like dissolve. Um, and, but it comes in five milligrams. So they really, the idea is that for whatever you're using, you want to use the less side effect one uh, with the lower uh, dose and lower frequency. And so you could even get the 2.5 tablet and maybe cut it in half and basically, you know, mix it with something. Uh, Risperidol comes in liquid formulation, one milligram per milliliter. So that can also just be given really more easily It's um, and they can't really spit it out. <laughs> so I think about all these things and formulations that can uh, uh, be easily absorbed um, before really thinking about something like I am. So that's kind of uh, those kind of things that I do. So, so the take home message is that if you're talking about evidence, it doesn't exist, but we do fully uh, understand that there are instances where um, we do need uh, pharmacological intervention. And so these are some of the things that you can think of when you when you are at that step. And if there's actual psychosis, hallucinations, do you consider that an actual indication then for the, the antipsychotics, you know, if they're having that with as part of their delirium? Or... Well, so it depends. I think, you know, so once again, I see a lot of these uh, hallucinations, psychosis in the context of dementia patients. Yeah. So you kind of want to kind of probe into well, what is the nature of it? What is it? And is it some... So there are patients who um, might have some, you know, ideas, but it's not really distressing. Uh, and for some people, uh, it they actually feel like some, you know, somebody's trying to harm them. And so there's like an actual distress. And so I think depending on what the nature of those things are, uh, that's when you make the decision of, you know, does this, you know, need a pharmacotherapy or not, or, or just something, you know, th that you can calm down by just by soothing them and talking to them. So you had mentioned uh, using restraints, Dr. O. So when would you consider doing that or what are, what are the kind of scenarios when that might be appropriate? And um, I'm assuming that almost all the time that's something you try to avoid credibly. I really want to once again emphasize that I really think it's a um, kind of a cultural thing. Um, as in like what the, the unit award is doing. I had not seen restraints in many, many, many years. And I saw, you know, it happened once um, and I was kind of very surprised. And once again, I had been visiting different hospitals, just really trying to figure out, you know, how, you know, people practice differently. And once again, it really depended on, um, you know, wh what, um, what the culture of the unit or ward is, uh, whether restraints are used or not. But I can see how, like let's say an ICU setting, if the patient is, uh, you know, obviously trying to extubate or, you know, or something like that, perhaps that's indicated, but I'm not an intensivist. So I'm not sure that, um, and I, so I don't practice an ICU setting. Um, so I'm not sure that that's something that I can comment on, but I can say that, you know, in addition to restraints, um, so that that in itself can cause more delirium. Um, you know, I want to talk about other things like Foley, right? So that's, uh, it's not a restraint, but that's like something that kind of tethers them to like a place or bed or, you know, so um, that's something that, 
I, especially, you know, how staff, I think they, like, we need to have the numbers, you know, I's and O's. And, and unless somebody's an acute consensus heart failure, you know, I think we're perfectly capable of figuring out, you know, whether somebody's volume overloaded or not. And we don't really need exact I's and O's. And if anything, prolonged use of, you know, fully, uh, one can cause delirium, but of course, you know, um, can cause, you know, um, urinary tract infection, iatrogenic as well. So those are kind of, you know, things that, that I think about. Uh, restraints, foleys, um, and unnecessary lines, maintenance fluids that we forget about, right? So uh, really important that we just kind of really pay attention to that on a daily basis. We're coming to the end here. So any any other burning questions? Um, I, I have one or two more that I was going to get to, but anything else? Yeah, sure, Matt. Bef- before we kind of wrap up this section, I was curious, Esther, if you could tell us a little bit more specifically about approaches to the behavioral interactions to try to de-escalate these situations, whether there's anything that has specific evidence or whether you just have any kind of recommendations or things that you can refer the audience to, to be a bit more effective stewards of some of these behavioral approaches to trying to make the situation better. Sure. Um, So, you know, and I would say this kind of comes from, once again, um, my uh, work experience with, you know, patients who have, you know, cognitive impairment. And of course, they come to see a lot of us at the memory clinic because of the behavioral problems associated with dementia. And, you know, I would say similar techniques also work in delirium, although obviously we're talking about more of an acute mental status change that's different from dementia. So one of the things that we need to do is redirecting the patient. So uh, especially when patients have dementia, now they have delirium, they might have, you know, fixed ideations or, you know, whatever it is. Once again, it's kind of neat. We need to kind of probe into what is the nature of the uh, delusions or hallucinations they have. But really, um, I'd like to just kind of change the topic. So if they kind of perseverate on one thing, I really just kind of try to redirect them by changing the topic. One of the biggest reasons why patients actually become agitated, um, especially on the outpatient settings and somewhat true for inpatient settings is because they don't have enough activities. Okay, so what I mean by that is um, uh, they, they, they need to have um, uh, activities and it can be, it can be fairly variable. So in our hospital, we actually have a recreational therapist. So she actually comes and actually, you know, works with individual patients, you know, figure out what they like, and then just kind of occupies them. Sometimes, you know, in, in, um, uh, more, um, severe cases, it's like one-on-one activity. Um, but, you know, um, but she might, you know, do some group activities that really occupies the attention of the patients and they do much better and the agitation, you know, de-escalates. I also think the environment is, you know, very important. Um, you know, uh, we often have a lot of noise um, around us. And so, um, this is also true in outpatient like dementia case where we actually think, um, you know, I might like sometimes, you know, grandparents who might have cognitive impairment and we say, oh, wouldn't it be great if they, eh, you know, spent a lot of time with like little small children, their grandchildren. And what happens is a lot of noise, a lot of uh, uh, commotion that tends to really confuse them. And actually they get really agitated. So really keeping a calm environment, calm, soothing environment. Um, You know, um, I know some hospitals have like roommates, some are more private. Um, So, you know, also kind of depends on, you know, what kind of um, environment they might have. But I really think um, one of the better uh, ways also is somehow connecting the patients with their family members. So really at the height of the COVID pandemic, when um, no one was really allowed to come, so no family members, we've had patients who 
Um, I'm embarrassed to say, I kind of almost said, you know, this patient really is not going to survive. And I had one intern who said, Dr. O, like, I, I'm going to like look after this patient. And, and some of, I mean, aside from, you know, obviously being really medically attentive, um, this was a very, very uh, sick gentleman from COVID-19, um, I think in his eighties. Um, he got an iPad, did FaceTime with his family. He got to see his wife. And I can tell you, um, he came to me from ICU with lots of tubes and just kind of everything. And all of those things kind of came out. And I know he went home. Like, I, I, I know that he went home. So, like, family interactions, that is just also very, very critical. If they can come and see the patients in person, that's wonderful. If not, just really making sure that we can get them connected um, and just paying, paying attention to that, I think will go a long way um, of really... Um, reorienting them and just hearing, you know, basically families members' voice can also be very, very um, calming. I think there was even one small trial using front-facing iPad video or some sort of screen so that they could see family members even if they weren't there. And there, there was at least one article I saw in the past couple of years about doing that. Um, yeah, and also I saw um, in uh, one of the daughters from a, uh, one of my patients, um, she brought one of those um, screens where the, the photos kept on rotating. Mm-hmm. And I, I would see my patients just looking at that. It was a pretty large screen and just, you know, smiling. And also, I think another thing is, you know, talking about really humanization of, um, you know, medicine is I've seen some recreational therapists who would ask the family members to kind of make a collage of the patient. Mm-hmm. And sometimes like, you know, you have like pictures of, you know, their current, you know, them, you know, patients, you know, pictures very current, but when they're younger and all stages of life. And I really think, it, you know, People get really interested, like, you know, tell me about, <laughs> you know, who you are, what you did, and that really makes them engaged as well. So I think just really getting to know, the, um, you know, creating an environment where um, the staff also want to get to know the patients and in getting them engaged, as well as family members, I think can go a long way. I want to take a step back. It's been it's been a couple of years since I've done inpatient medicine, thank God. So those days are far behind me. But I can say, I think especially with the hyperactive delirium I sometimes see those patients get the million dollar workup. So we're, 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 you know, we're doing your analysis and God help us for checking a TSH, even though we would do exactly nothing with it, even if it was abnormal <laughs> uh, or neuroimaging or, you know, that, a troponin for some reason. But I, I guess the, the point being is I feel like there's sort of a, a fair amount of diagnostic workup that goes into just, I think, almost out of desperation sometimes. I'm wondering in your experience, sort of what is warranted and what kind of things do we maybe not do as well as we could diagnostically when we're trying to sort of get to the bottom of hyperactive delirium? Yeah, um, I guess the thing that I see most often is a TSH vitamin B12 folic acid, (laughs) which is kind of like a dementia workup. And that's fine. You know, um, these are some things that, you know, uh, we're all kind of taught to do, uh, you know, basic, but I would do, you know, basic, you know, metabolic workup, like, you know, just getting a CMP, you know, CBC, um, uh, you know, I, I do want to say, you know, something about TSH. Uh, we do know that um, often hypothyroidism is looked for in dementia and delirium cases, and they're over-treated. There's some good evidence mm. showing that actually uh, if you have dementia diagnosis, for um, <laughs> you tend to get treated more for um, maybe uh, borderline TSH. Then if you mm-hmm. don't, uh, there's some also studies that show that perhaps, um, you know, use of, you know, like uh, basically thyroid replacement therapy uh, o- over time may not be, you know, so good for you. 
But anyway, so that's, you know, getting off track a little bit. Um, so once again, Paul, just like you said, you know, sometimes we can get a little bit, you know, desperate. But um, I would say, you know, other than that, just the regular workup, looking at medications, I think is, you know, really, really critical. Um, and sometimes we think we need all the medications. But once again, we might, but uh, we could always use a lower dose. Um, if it's a critical medicine, making sure that it's obviously renally adjusted. In terms of CTs and, you know, EEGs, um, my yield with EEG has not been the best. It's always just kind of shows, you know, slow wave um, CT, <laughs> right. you know, if um, if the delirium goes for a long time or obviously, you know, if you're finding something focal, it's, I think it's warranted. Um, I think I maybe I've done ordered LP, you know, once or twice, but not that often. You obviously have to have other signs to, you know, uh, yeah. you know, suspect um, like something like a, you know, like meningitis or yeah. And thank you for asking that, Paul, because that was that was a question that uh, that we we talked about some of these like severe, protracted, especially for me in the hypoactive delirium, especially if the patient was functional more recently before they came in. I feel like those patients end up with MRI, EEG, LP. You know, because you're just like there. We we didn't have enough. We were surprised that the person had this bad of a delirium, and they end up getting that bigger workup. In my experience, and I struggle what to tell the family members there. Like, will they ever get better? I don't know. You know, because sometimes I've seen it go on for weeks, and then you know maybe they never bounce back. So I think those are the toughest cases. Uh, any comments there? Otherwise, I wanted to ask you just one question about treatment pitfalls. But any comments or or, or response to to those anything you tell patients when you're in that situation with that like three weeks of delirium yeah um that's really difficult um we do know from um like hip fracture studies that actually when they come in for like a 30-day follow-up with an orthopedic surgeon um there's some of them are still delirious and then some you know still like like three to three to six months as well um so those are very 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 difficult um and I, as a memory clinic physician, actually see the see them on my end. Um, actually, that's how I got interested in delirium is because um, I would have patients, family members bring um, the patient and say, my mom was normal. She was living independently across the street from me. And here she is. And she, you know, has like moderate dementia. And at first, you know, I have to say it was like in disbelief, like, oh, surely this must have been going on for much longer. And but the more cases I saw and there was no rhyme or reason, like there was like one procedure they went through or whatever that kind of, you know, happened. But invariably, when I really probed into it, they would say, yeah, right after surgery, went a little bit longer than expected, but like they became really confused and we thought it was just like narcotics, but then it never went away. And here she is, or, you know, here he is. So that's kind of how I got interested is like, you know, these new onset dementia that I was seeing in my memory clinic, and then their history of being in the hospital and, you know, patients becoming um, delirious. Um, But, um, you know, it's, so we can think about, you know, psychotropic medications, but I would say also, you know, uh, management of comorbidities is also important. You know, some people who have diabetes um, and, uh, uh, their glucose is in, out of control, whether it's too low or too high. Um, I pay, pay it as an internist. That, that's how I approach my memory care is like I pay, pay attention to all of those comorbidities. And that, you know, should be true for, you know, prolonged, you know, delirium. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not easy. I'm not sure that I have um, like the magic, you know, magic solution to that. Thank you. 
So last question uh, before we get some take-home points is, what did you want to point out any big mistakes or pitfalls in treating delirium? Hmm. Um, I guess it's usually kind of um, uh, too much and maybe inappropriate antipsychotic use. So in, I fully recognize that when we talk about higher mortality, extrapyramidal symptoms of antipsychotics, those are usually associated with prolonged use. So we're not really talking about one to two days for delirium treatment. But when you look at the literature, what we find is that people who were for the first time prescribed antipsychotics, probably for you know something like ICU delirium, good, good about 20 to 30% actually end up having them at the time of hospital discharge. And it probably happens for several reasons. One is, you know, feel like, well, it, you know, if they also have another, you know, agitation, you know, um, episode, you know, no rehab is going to take them. So, you know, for preventive measures, we're just going to have them the medication um, or, you know, how neglectful are we? You know, sometimes we just kind of copy, um, you know, what they were on without really thinking, you know, item by item or medication by medication, you know, do they still need this? Or thinking that somebody on the other end, and I don't know who that would be, you know, a primary care physician or somebody would know to take them off. And the thing is, the reality is that um, when you receive them on outpatient basis, um, and I think, Paul, this is something that we talked about outpatient is, well, like, I'm not really sure why this was started, but I'm sure it was for a good reason and I probably need to keep it on. And so that is the danger is this kind of in treatment is what was meant to be a short-term, low dose, low frequency ends up being a very prolonged use that actually ends up uh, being very, very harmful. That's such a great point because it's especially something like an antipsychotic where you see it, I'm like, well, somebody put them on it for a reason. Like you, you you don't want to stop that one. And it was probably... God, for some confusion that happened months before they actually landed back in your office. That is chilling. Along um, with the proton pump inhibitor for <laughs> while they were intubated. Sure. <laughs> right. And now they have C. diff. But yeah. but really, truth be told, um, you know, just um, the side effects. So, you know, we're talking about, well, you, it can cause stroke. It can cause, you know, high mortality. But in fact, on day-to-day basis, they could have orthostatic hypertension, right? I mean, it could actually be causing some confusion, you know, right? Actually, some things that we do when patients come in with really bad agitation in the hospital is we peel off their uh, medications and they actually do much better. Sometimes the brain gets completely overloaded with, you know, psychotropic medications. So, you know, in, in, in an effort to do, you know, good for our patients, we end up doing harm. So I think, um, you know, the less is better. I always tell my patients, you know, the fewer doctors you have and the fewer medications you're taking, you'll live longer. Did you have uh, a final one or two take-home points that you wanted to to leave the audience with? This has been, I think, just a really fantastic interview. Uh, I'd like to book you for at least two or three more hours at some point <laughs> in the future. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. But uh, just for now, we have to we have to leave the audience wanting more. Paul, I'm told in show business, that's a good thing to do. Are, are we in show? Also, Paul, are we in show business? I, it's great questions both, Matt. We should probably start leaving the audience this morning something. <laughs> okay. Well, um, so I think I want to say that, you know, some of the common diagnostic mistakes that, you know, um, that we see is actually 
you know, not recognize del- uh, delirium because we don't actively screen for delirium. Um, so hypoactive delirium is missed, and it's the most common uh, type of delirium. But you you, you can't you, often we, you miss it because it's not in your face delirium. So I would say that's the most common pitfall. Uh, what's the most common treat? Uh, you know, mistake. Um, treatment mistake or workup mistake would be, um, I think, you know, we can all uh, kind of, it, re- it would resonate with all of us. Just checking the UA and not looking for anything else or keep checking the UA <laughs> until it becomes positive, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, um, yes, sometimes UTI can cause delirium. And here, here's a take-home message. Even if it is, what you need to do is look for another cause because delirium is usually multifactorial. So if you have a borderline UTI and you say, well, you know, this is it, and I'm just going to give them IV antibiotics and, you know, this is all going to get better and you walk away, you're, you're making a big mistake um, because invariably something else is going on. Another thing that I would like to actually talk about in terms of treatment just very briefly is that, you know, I... I work on the wards, you know, two weeks at a time as a service attending and, you know, all my residents and interns do as well. And so sometimes because I emphasize prevention, um, I, th- I just want to make the, you know, le- you know, listeners aware that uh, when you come on the wards, you know, if you're in service or you, you know, get a sign up from colleague and you find your patients to be like already delirious and just say, oh, well, you know, I kind of missed the, you know, window and it's all lost cause. I think one of the things that I tried to impress upon you today is that actually, no, you can do so much more for your patients. And I'm going to ask you not to walk away from your patient. I'm going to ask you to go back, look at that medication list again, make sure you didn't make you know uh, miss any infection. Just go over it again. Because one of the things that we know from really evidence-based is that if you can actually reduce the severity of delirium and actually you can reduce the duration of delirium, you can make a big difference in a person's life. And we'll probably never see them outpatient basis. And, you know, um, but but we know that that will actually shorten the, the you know, the damage that happens in the brain. So um, just please, you know, make sure that even if you find your patient to be already delirious, um, just help them. And I think, uh, um, you know, I think it'll just go a long way of um, just the patients doing well on long-term basis. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> Great. Kind of unsettling. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. I wanted to give a special thanks to Paul, what are we calling him? Hospitalist whiz kid, Dr. Adam Borelski. Yeah, at last check. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> for uh, helping to write and produce this episode. Technical production for the show is done by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. 
And Paul, with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Dr. Adam Borelski. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. 